was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by theater veteran Bob Fitch. In addition to creating the role of Rooster in Annie, Bob Fitch has also been featured in such shows as The Will Rogers Follies, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Mac and Mabel, Do Re Mi, Henry Sweet Henry, Coco, Promises Promises, Lorelai, Sherry, Flora the Red Menace, Baker Street, Tenderloin, The Girl Who Came to Supper, Mame, Hell's a Poppin', Pieces of Eight, Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up, My Fair Lady at City Center, Accidental Death of an Anarchist, Seventy Girls Seventy and Follies at Encores, and Anything Goes and Half Past Wednesday Off-Broadway. He is also a legendary magician, having created acts for people like David Copperfield, David Blaine, and Chris Angel. On the screen, he has appeared in Once Upon on a mattress, pennies from heaven, Stephen King's thinner, and more. So I know you'll all be eager to hear what he has to say. So without further ado, Bob Fitch. I guess I want to ask you first how you became interested in theater and in dancing. Okay. Oh my God, you're 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 getting at my roots here. <clears throat> I was younger than you. I was probably eight years old. We didn't have television. We just had radio and I heard tap dancing on the radio. And I asked my mother, I was eight, um, what's that? She said, tap dancing. I said, yeah, what's that? She said, okay. So she took me for my first tap dancing lesson. And at the end of it, I was across the room from my mom and I heard the teacher quietly, yeah, right. Say to her, he's a natural Mrs. Fitch. And I went, oh, <laughs> I did something good. <laughs> so that, that was the start of it, you know. I guess my mother had wanted to be a dancer, but her father was from Germany, the old country back then. And they said, oh, no, you don't want to be one of those women. So they had a totally different idea about dancers back then. So, so she kind of lived the dancing through me because we went to the lessons and classes. And uh, the teachers I had said, uh, we can't teach him anymore. So we found another teacher who was an old vaudeville dancer. And he was terrific. And then at one point he said, I can't teach him anymore. And I went from uh, Santa Cruz in the Monterey Bay area in California to San Jose in the mountains. And then up to San Francisco and uh, Stanley Kahn. And he was, he was just great. And he sent me to his friend. Louis Dupron in Los Angeles, who was Donald O'Connor's coach and often made the, the sound for his movies when he did tap dancing, you know. And uh, so I studied with him. And uh, then in the meantime, I, I realized that tap dancing wouldn't just do it for me. So I had to take ballet and modern and those things, you know. And then I went with my teachers, different teachers, different times. 
to like New York and there would be a dancing teacher convention where people would teach for the teachers and give them new routines to take home to their classes for the kids, for the beginners, the you know, the intermediate, the, the um, advanced. And uh, I would demonstrate those routines. And in one of them, I became, I was 19 years old and uh, somebody said, well, he would be good for Ted Mack, which was an extension of the radio show, Major Bowes, that started me when I was eight. And it was a television show, right? And, uh, <laughs> and I got on and I won three times. And as a result, I went to the grand finals uh, in Madison Square Garden opposite Pat Boone and uh, we competed with each other. <laughs> and um, I didn't win at that one, but I stayed there. I went to school, went to my second year of college there and was studying dance. And I came back from New York and I was the first person to teach modern jazz in San Francisco. And uh, I started teaching in San Francisco, started teaching tap and jazz. And uh, you know, along the way I did shows, local shows. And uh, I got uh, drafted into the army and I was in there for two years, but I lucked out. They had a program called Rolling Along of 1958. And it was an all army talent show that went around the world to almost every army base in the world. And I was on that. I had a partner, uh, Michael Jordan, and we did a comedy act. We made fun of the first lieutenants. And um, so we did that for almost a year. And when we got out of the army, they let us, they let me out in New York. And I started auditioning for Broadway shows. And that's kind of how it all started, you know, started back when I was eight years old. And uh, I didn't know where it was gonna lead, but I was always busy doing it. And then I became a, a busy teaching teachers at the dancing teacher conventions. I started doing that myself and uh, teaching teacher techniques, how to teach, ideas to teach, you know, and that started being, excuse me. And um, so that, that got me to Broadway. And I started auditioning for shows and getting shows and the rest is history, 40 years on Broadway. Ah. <laughs> So did you always know that you wanted to get to New York? Was that sort of your goal? Or was that just something that happened when you got out of the army? Um, <coughs> excuse me. I didn't know that much. I just, I kind of was in love with what I was doing. And uh, my dad was an inventor, you know, and he could fix anything. Back then, television was new, but he could fix a television set. He could fix a refrigerator. He could fix anything you brought to him. He invented an artificial arm that was used by the Navy during the Second World War. And the guy brought him an artificial arm. He said, this isn't made right. You know, you got the joint in the wrong place. It should be in the lower arm, not the upper arm. Anyway, he, he was great at figuring out problems and uh, analyzing things. And I never inherited his technical knowledge, but I guess what I inherited from him when I look back on it was kind of the desire and the possibility of solving problems, coming up with ideas um, 
I suppose that's that's why I worked so much on Broadway, because I would analyze the auditions. I would try to figure out what did I do wrong or what could I have done to have gotten me, you know, hired. And uh, I often figured out all kinds of little strategies to do, and they they got me the jobs. And I kept wondering, why isn't anybody else doing that? They're standing there and, <laughs> and they sing or they dance and they say, thank you. And they walk out and I didn't get that job. But I, I would say, why didn't I get that job? You know, hmm. And I realized that some of the dancers could do acrobatics. Some of those guys got hired because they could do two things. Well, I did eccentric dancing like Ray Bolger and played the wizard, the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz, you know, the pun, punny dancing, twisting legs and all kinds of weird, weird stuff. And uh, so instead of being in the wings warming up, I would stand and hold down the curtain uh, on stage and do some of these funny things. And I get hired and son of a gun, two weeks later, the choreographer would say, well, I saw you doing some crazy stuff, you know, at the, at the audition. Show me some of that. I could use some of that here. So I realized at that moment, I didn't get hired for the audition. I got hired for the warm up. And, uh, you know, just figuring out those things. I would stand with, I'm, I'm six foot one. So I would stand with the short guys because I wanted to stand out. If they were wearing light clothes, I was wearing dark clothes. I would stand with them. If those guys over there are really good, I won't stand with them. <laughs> I just kind of up my advantage, you know. So I guess being able to figure out problems was uh, part of the key to my success, my curiosity, you know, and then figuring out, let me try it this way next time. Instead of saying, oh, 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 I didn't get the job. I don't have time for that. I have kids. I've got to make a living. And uh, so let's come up with some ideas, you know. So anyway, that's my, my short, long story. <laughs> So what were some of the shows that you auditioned for before you got your first, which was Tenderloin? Tenderloin was the first show I auditioned for, and it was the first show I got. Oh. I had gotten out of the Army. They let us out in New York City instead of going back to the West Coast. Uh, I, was, I, I had just gotten married um, about oh, when I, yeah, in, I was in Texas, stationed in Texas before I went on this uh, year tour. And uh, so on our way back through te uh, Texas, I got married to uh, Polly, my lovely wife. And uh, <laughs> she sees us and I have to say something nice, you know. <laughs> Not really. She's great. And uh, well, so when I got out, I auditioned for summer stock. And I went upstate New York and uh, I did my first summer of stock. We had like um, I think it was eight shows and we had to do them every week. So we would do the show one night and then the morning and the afternoon, we would be working on the show for the next week. So we had to learn everything very fast, you know, choreography, songs, lines, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I came back to New York and the first audition was Tenderloin. And uh, I didn't get it right away. Um, we auditioned and right in the middle of a jump, the creator said, thank you, which means goodbye. And I, this is so, this is so silly and so trite, but it's exactly what I felt. I thought, 
Well, doggone it. He, he said good, thank you in the middle of a jump. Why didn't he wait till I landed? Now, that's pretty stupid. But I said, okay, okay. The next day was an open call, meaning a non-union call. I went to it, torn jeans. I didn't shave. I said, to heck with it. I hope he doesn't recognize me because I'm auditioning again. And I stayed after the first day so I could learn all the steps. I want to know all the steps when I go in tomorrow. So instead of there being 300 guys auditioning for eight parts, uh, there were only 25 guys there because they figured all the union guys will get the call. So I went and I was the only one he kept. And they said, oh, they said, come in this afternoon and bring your music. So I did. Oh my God, there were like 300 people there again. But now it was for men and women. And I was in the A group and the B group. I thought, oh, which one am I in? And uh, I mean, it was my first audition. I didn't know what to expect. And, <laughs> and I was in the A group. And then he said, you're one of the eight. And then there was a 10 or 11 day strike on Broadway. All shows were closed. Like now there's a pandemic and everything is closed. You know, it's terrible. But that was 10 or 11 days. Uh, the only one I ever experienced in all those years. And at any rate, I said, well, you can't sign. You have to wait till the strike is over, you know. So I called the next day and they said, who are you? And I went, ah, I'm one of the eight guys that was chosen. When do I come in and sign? And they said, well, uh, just a minute. And the production stage manager came and he said, oh, Bob, I'm so sorry. We made a mistake. We should have only hired seven oh. because the assistant to the choreographer is also in the show and we didn't count him. So your first alternate in case somebody leaves. I went, ah. oh yeah, right, right, sure, sure. Then I thought, okay, okay, okay. What can I do? Is there anything I can do? Okay, I'm gonna write a letter to the choreographer. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I'm first alternate now, but uh, please keep this picture and resume on your files for future shows. I'd love to audition for you again. Okay. So I found his home address. I didn't want to send it to the producers because that's a different camp than the choreographer and the director and the writer, all of that, you know? So then I went to a bar, <clears throat> it was kind of a dancer's bar. And I bumped into one of the guys who was going to be hired. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, I'll see you next Friday. And this was Friday. I said, okay, I won't be there. He said, why not? I told him the whole story. He said, oh, too bad, sorry. Tuesday morning, I got a call. You still want to be in this show? I went, ah, of course. He said, be here at one o'clock. I live in New Jersey. So that was 12 o'clock. So I had to be there in an hour. I got there, I asked the stage manager, what happened? He said, just keep your mouth shut. Okay. Now, the guy I saw in the bar, I said, what happened? He said, there was one of the eight guys was doing an industrial show and he's in Washington state or something. We don't know how to get a hold of him. There were no cell phones then. Um, there was no way they could get in touch with him. And the choreographer said, well, what happened to this guy? Well, I got this letter from this kid Fitch. Why don't you get him here? So the kid I bumped into the bar explained the whole thing to him first alternate and all that explained why I had written the letter. So I came in 
Now, last part of his long story was there used to be a three-day pro three probationary period that if you weren't right, if they thought maybe you wouldn't work out, they'd let you go. And if it were within the three days, they'd give you the three days pay. After three days, they'd have to give you a two-week salary. That was a union rule. I was there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and on the fourth day, the guy from Washington came in oh. thinking it was his, that was when they were supposed to start, but they pushed the rehearsal forward to Monday. So he never heard about it. Now, are they gonna keep me who have been there three days? Uh, or are they gonna hire him? If they do, they have to pay me two weeks and him two weeks. And they don't do that, Broadway's cheap. So, <laughs> So I got hired. I got the job. Just the perseverance writing that letter, bumping into the guy at the bar. It's all dumb luck. But if I hadn't done any of that, I wouldn't have gotten the job. You know, you never know. So that was my, my first job. So that was great. It was really <laughs> wonderful. George Abbott was the director who was pretty famous. And uh, Joe Layton was a choreographer. And he was there. It was great. It was a great time. And they found out I could do magic. And so the, the director said, well, this is in the 30s. This is depression. And this is a depression line, a food line, you know, waiting to get food. And, and you're there and you're juggling in, 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 in the line and, and you drop your, the, all the balls because, uh, because you're depressed. So, okay. Well, I never juggled before. I did magic, but they think juggling and magic are the same thing. No, it's not. So I stayed up till three o'clock in the morning teaching myself to juggle. So I was able to juggle three things. That was my limit, but it didn't need any more than that. So that was fine. So, you know, at any rate, I had a lot of good times in, in Tenderloin. We also, I also took the show to Las Vegas after it closed. We went to Las Vegas for the whole summer and I was the dance captain and put people into the show so I was like the assistant to the choreographer, you know. So I had a lot of training just doing that show. Learned a lot, you know. So, question? <laughs> I think uh, I was going to ask you, I believe in Tenderloin, you were also an understudy as well as being in the- Oh my God. Oh, so you, you just turned on the faucet. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, yes. Back then, um, dancers and singers were really separated. And there was a call while I was in the show, when it first started, for people who, uh, for guys to uh, audition for understudies and small parts. So I went in, it was one o'clock in the afternoon, I went in and one of the guys said to me, hey, what are you doing here? You're a dancer. I went, what? <laughs> and, oh, and I looked around. There were no dancers there. It was just singers. And I went, oh, oh, I'm sorry. This is my first show. I didn't know there was an unwritten law that said dancers couldn't audition for male parts. And I went, oh, you singers. Oh, you're just so something. You're, you, oh, you've been to college too. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Oh, and you speak. Oh, 
and, and, and because you speak, you can probably sing too. Why less dances, we just flip around, flip around. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. The hell with you. I'm auditioning this afternoon, okay? And I got two small parts in an understudy and they were so mad at me, oh. but I was breaking the code, the unspoken code, you know? Why can't I, why can't I do small parts? What does a dancer got to do with it? You know, <clears throat> that was the thinking, you know? And uh, yeah, so that explains the, the uh, you know, understudying the small parts. <clears throat> and then of course, when, I, when we went to Las Vegas with the show, I became the dance captain and started putting people in the show, directing them, uh, you know, helping them with their blocking and, and their lines and things like that. So, so it was kind of, that tenderloin was kind of an all around proving ground to me. You know, I learned an awful lot and got a lot of good ideas from different people. And uh, besides being on stage, you know, so that was great. That was a great time. So after tenderloin did you mostly try to go to singing and dancing audition singing and acting auditions as well or mostly dancing auditions no back then back then dancers weren't considered actors they were hardly considered singers <clears throat> and the only show that really had dancers as actors and singers was um, west side story which was older you know and not until chorus line did dancers achieve that same level of um, ability to be a three, a, 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 a triple threat, singer, dancer, actor, right? But I was in between those two periods and dancers were not supposed to, were not capable of acting or not capable of singing. That's what people thought. And I was breaking the code, so to speak. I was breaking that whole thing whole down because later on they wanted dancers to sing because they didn't want to hire eight guys to, to dance and eight guys to sing. And similarly with the women, they wanted the dancers to be able to sing so they wouldn't hire those extra 16 people. They would save a lot of money. And I didn't feel I was a singer. So and I said, how can I compete if I can't do that? So I went to a singer's call. I didn't want to sing. I just wanted to see what the singers did. I wanted to educate myself, you know? So I went, the singers would walk down to the middle of the stage. They didn't know how to find their light. Or maybe they had great voices, you know? You want to hear my wonderful voice. Here I am, my wonderful voice. And but they didn't say anything. They didn't act out the words. And I thought, what, what, what's the matter with these guys? They don't understand. You have to be part, you have to be the character when you sing that song. They didn't say anything, you know? And I went, oh my God. Okay, I know how to compete now. I'm gonna sing a song with maybe somebody like a dancer, a Ray Bolger uh, in, um, a show would sing, and so they recognize the dance part of it, but I'm going to stage the song, you know, act it out and stage it. And uh, that I thought, I got to take acting classes. 
I have to take acting classes. And I had a, a pretty good teacher, but anyway, right. um, it changed my life. It changed my life. It probably changed my real life as well, not just working on stage, but I just became more confident, you know, more able to understand things and figure things out for myself and for my family, you know? Anyway, so I became in my own time, a triple threat, which a lot of dancers never accomplished because, well, they didn't, they didn't, I don't know if they didn't want it that much or they just didn't know how to do it. But I, being curious, I think of curiosity and imagination as thinking vertically. It's thinking outside the box. If ever I could pass anything like that on to my kids, uh, it, to me, it was salvation. To me, it was learning to survive, learning, uh, just being curious about everything, you know? Well, Obviously. I want to ask you about another show. Anything Goes Off-Broadway. So yeah. what did you think about the revision of the script and the adding of the songs that they did? Um, I liked it. I mean, I was there as a, a dancer, singer, <clears throat> and uh, I really wasn't at that point. That was very early on in my career and uh, in my work. So uh, it was just enough to, to get into the show and do it and be there. And uh, I wasn't because we dance in one at one place and they do the, the show, the, the script in another place. So then they stick it all together. So I really wasn't a part of that process. I was just involved with the dancers and the songs that the dancers had to sing. You know? Yeah. Well, you did get to work with a great choreographer, Ron Field, on that show. So what was, what was it like to work with him? Ronnie, Ronnie was wonderful. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. He was very imaginative. Um, I did a couple of shows with him. And the one that I liked doing the most with him is when I did Liza Minnelli's Nightclub Act. Mm -hmm. We went around the world to almost every nightclub. Nightclubs are not so much open anymore, even before the pandemic. But uh, we hit almost every nightclub, good nightclub in the world. We were at the Olympia Theater in Paris, Coca Trix's place. We were at the top of the town in London. Uh, we were at Checkers in Australia, in Sydney. Uh, we were at the Opera House in Melbourne, in Australia. We were just a year and a half, the best places. It used to be the Persian Room in New York City, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, the Steel Pier in Atlantic City, and all these places, you know? We got to play them. And Liza, Liza was wonderful, but, but Ron, ah, he was just brilliant. He was just brilliant. Because they wanted to show, the uh, Liza had done, Floor of the Red Menace. And I did that with her. And uh, after the show was over, she wasn't getting much attention from her agents because they were promoting, I can't think of the woman singer. Sorry, they'll come to me later. Uh, 
they were promoting another singer, not Liza. She was kind of at the bottom of the heap in terms of their promoting. And she wanted she wanted publicity. She wanted to get out there and work. Yes. And so the composers put together this show and Ron Field executed all the movement in the show and came up with his own concepts. And uh, so created comedy with Neil Schwartz and I. He was a short fat kid. I was a tall skinny kid. <laughs> and, um, so, oh God, there's too many stories there. Don't know which one to tell first. Um, anyway, we did a year and a half with her all around the world. And it was just a, it was just a great time, but uh, it was Ronnie Fields' imagination with the kind of numbers that he, that he created for us, the dance numbers that were real thought-provoking ideas you know, that were dances. And uh, like, like Liza was kind of, she, she was 19 and 20 years old at the time we did this, 19 when we put it together. And she had just done her first Broadway show and she was, you know, just kind of loving life, loving the world, and uh, not sure which way to go, who to be. And they were able to capture that quality, you know. Uh, she would come on after a song and, and would talk about, I need to dance and do all these beautiful things. And, and, and I, would meet, I would meet my partner and he would put his hand out to me and I would take it and he would put his arm around my waist and pull me close to him. And I would put my hand on his shoulder and dance. And she dances around and suddenly she ends up close to stage right. And suddenly there's Neil Schwartz, short fat kid. And she looks at him and she looks at the audience. And she, I don't know. Looks out her hand, she takes it, does a waist thing, pulls him in, just like she imagined, right? And then suddenly he's dancing around beautifully and lifting her up in the air, which is a total surprise because he, he's short and fat and doesn't look like he can do anything. He can also do acrobatics, you know? So he's taking, throwing her around and all of a sudden she gets into a dizzy spin and gets over to the same stage right. And suddenly I'm there, tall, hopefully handsome. <laughs> and she says, oh, oh, wow, mm, this is the one, uh-huh. So I put my hand out, she takes it, we do the same kinds of motion. And then suddenly we're into an Argentine tango. But she's, she's being tossed all around. And now she's between the two of us. What's she going to do? We all start dancing together, you know, and she dances from one of us to the other. And then we both lift her up and uh, all of those things, you know, and it turns into a really fun number. And then we have another number with her after that. And then she said, oh, I'm so tired. He said, I, I, so I, I've got to go change clothes and, and use a towel. You guys, you guys do something while I'm gone. What? She leaves the two of us on stage. What are we going to do? And Neil goes, boom. I put my hand in his. He pulls me close. We look at the audience. And then we start doing this 
ballet number. Little, little, well, it's like, yeah, anyway. Anyway, we start dancing and he does his acrobatics, flips in the air, and I do all my sentence stuff down to the ground, screwball things, you know. <clears throat> we finish the dance together, take a bow, and then we present Liza. She comes on the stage, we leave, and then she kind of finishes the last part of the show. And at one point, we dance with her with a sort of a, uh, a very nice little, you know, a, a nice number, a sweet number. Um, anyway, but, but Ron, Ron Field was great. We were supposed to do another one with him, uh, Golden Rainbow, yeah. And he was fired in the middle of rehearsals. Oh. And all of the dancers that were hired were also fired. We got a new choreographer who brought in his own dancers. So that was very short-lived. We didn't get to do it. You know, but we had several weeks of rehearsal and then they just let us go. They had to pay us a couple of weeks salary after that. But, you know, it's crazy. Broadway's is crazy. A lot of it has to do with, do you, do you have the money to put this show together, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Mad Avenue was one where I always carried my bag on my back with my shoes and my towel. <clears throat> Never know when there's a rehearsal audition. And I went by one theater and the people were all going in. They all had dance bags. And I said, wow, this must be an audition I hadn't heard of. So I went in and it was a callback. Oh. A second audition. Well, I didn't do the first one. So I shouldn't even be there, but I am. Ha <laughs> So, <laughs> So there's a guy that's the head of the stage manager. He calls off a list. Uh, Let me see if everybody's here. Calls off the names. And here, yes, here, yes. Okay, anybody I missed, I raised my hand. So what's your name, Bob Fitch? Well, you're not on the list. Well, you just asked, is there anybody you didn't name? I'm Bob Fitch. He said, okay, all right, go on in. So I went in and I got hired. And some poor guy who uh, had passed the first audition didn't get in because of me. Yeah. We rehearsed for a month and I never saw any singers. And I saw the lead the guy that was going to be the lead in it, he brought in his henchmen because that's what they looked like. Looked like mafioso. And uh, and he would be looking at the girl. <laughs> oh, God, help me. <laughs> Idiots. And, but what was happening was he was, which we didn't know, he was trying to raise money for the show. So he'd bring in different people to watch. If they liked the dances, maybe they would put money into it. That was crazy. But that's what he did. So we worked at that for a month. And I guess he didn't get his money and it quit. So a lot of crazy things like that. I was in shows that went out of town, were supposed to come back in. They didn't come back in. The uh, one with Jerry Lewis, Hell's a Poppin. We were out of town, Washington, D.C. And uh, Lynn Redgrave was the female star, Jerry Lewis, male star. And uh, he had a fight with the producer. And the uh, producer said, okay, this show is closed. Didn't bring it into Broadway. And then, then the producer blamed Jerry for the show's closing and, and uh, took him to court for a million dollars because he caused him to, be, uh, to lose money. The truth is the, the, the producer did that 
because he wanted to blame Jerry for closing the show, not himself for closing the show. And I was um, the legal representative for the union in that show, the deputy. And I had to go up before the jury, the lawyers for a whole week. And they, they just banged me with questions. Well, Mr. Fitch, uh, isn't it true that Jerry Lewis never learned his lines? I said, no, that's not true, sir. You can't afford to do that. He's got to know his lines when he goes on stage, for heaven's sake. Well, wasn't there, wasn't there a script in the orchestra pit that he looked down at? I said, mm, there was something in the orchestra pit, yes. But it wasn't a script. It was a list of jokes. And when he got a laugh, uh, with the ending of this joke, while people were laughing, he'd look down into the pit and it would tell him where the next moment was. And it might be across the stage. And that would tell him, I should cross over there because something else will happen on that side. You know, because they called them spritzes because they're all different little bits. Like the guy would go across the back of the audience with a, looks like a baby in his arms and it would go, wah, wah, right, right in the middle of the performance. And Jerry would pull out a gun and go, bang, bang. Yeah. The crying would stop. It was a joke. You know, and the audience would laugh. Or the uh, guy came out with a short ladder and walk across the audience. And the next time he came out, the ladder was taller. And the next time he came out, the ladder was really tall. Stupid things like that, but they were visually funny, you know? And I said, no, no, he knew his lines, but the new director in the show is changing the order of those lines. There's no way in hell, pardon my French, that Jerry could remember which line goes where or what's the next thing. So he's got a list. In fact, we have the list backstage on, on the walls so that those of us who have to come out and be part of that know where to come out and when to come out. You know, so at any rate, that's what the producer did to him. So as a result, we didn't go to get to go to Broadway, but we had like we had like two months of being out on the road and being in Washington in the middle of the ice and snowstorms. And he got fabulous audiences. Everybody loved him. But the producer kept the show from coming in. Anyway, there's lots of stories like that that nobody ever hears about. <coughs> You're hearing about some of them. <laughs> Do you think that Hells of Poppin could have worked or could have even been a hit if he had? Absolutely. It was It was a hit in probably 1937, I'm guessing, 37, 38. And uh, <clears throat> so they were reviving it with new sketches, new jokes, um, new ideas with Jerry Lewis. And it would have been a hit because we were... We were filled up every show when we were out of town. People at that point loved Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And he was, he was very, he was really wonderful. The first day of rehearsal, I'll never forget, he came up and he said, you are my people. Uh, I am working for you and you are supporting me. If there's ever a problem, you come to me and I will try to take care of it. Well, I did something stupid one night. We were in Boston. And a friend of mine in the show 
and I went out to dinner between shows, between the matinee and the evening. And uh, came away from the table, paid the check. That was payday. And I got about a block away from the restaurant and I said, oh my God, I had all my money, which was cash, in a white envelope. I left it on the table. Oh. It looks like a napkin, it's white. And I said, oh my God. So we went back and the money wasn't there. The waiter said they hadn't seen it. We went through the garbage can, everything. Somebody took it. I lost my week's paycheck. And I told my friend, I said, please, please don't tell anybody about this. I don't want to, I don't want to let, let them know how stupid I am. And uh, at the end of the run in Boston, uh, uh, the, the cast came to me. Can't think of her name now. Uh, at any rate, and uh, <coughs> I hate it when I can't remember her name. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, the, the woman in, in the lead in the show, she came up with about six of the people in the show and she said, now, I know you don't want to hear this, but we understand that you lost your money from one of the weeks. And the cast has put in money in this envelope to try to help you make up for your loss. I went, oh my God. And in it was the money and the difference between what they gave me and what I made was a check written by Jerry Lewis to me. So I got my whole week's salary back. And because of the cast, <clears throat> because of Jerry, I got it all back. I will never ever forget that, that kindness, you know? It was wonderful, wonderful. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I want to ask you, because I was curious about that show. Jerry Lewis was sort of like a low comedian, whereas Lynn Redgrave was like a great actress. So. How did they sort of interact together? Uh, fine. And Jerry was, um, she was the straight man, you know, if you understand what that means. Yeah. And he was, he was the comic. And, but uh, there were, there were days when, when they were trying out a new script and Jerry would take on a different character with uh, each one of those scripts. It demanded a, a different kind of person, a different kind of, silliness you know and he was so good at it I, I was amazed that his characters were so fully grown and he was able to be real with all those characters and that's not that's not easy but he was good so um his his uh, reactions with her were very sweet so it was a very nice relationship between the two of them you know yeah it was very good nice so i want to go back just quickly something you were talking about with Liza Minnelli's act as okay. you were mentioning. So I want to ask you, is she the one who asked you to do it or did Ron Field ask you, ask you to do it or did you audition? Well, when I did Floor of the Red Menace, uh, Neil uh, Schwartz was my partner and we did, a, uh, we did an act together in the show. And uh, it was about, it was 19, <clears throat> it was at the height of um, 
the whole communist uh, uprising, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, who was holding hearings in, in Washington, D.C., accusing oh. people of being communist uh, sympathizers, you know? Joseph McCarthy. That's it. Good for you, boy. I'm teaching me my own history. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Really bringing back all these things. At any rate, um, uh, I knew several people who were blacklisted. You know, Madeline Sherwood, oh, I'm getting off of the subject. Madeline Sherwood, uh, a lot of people. Neil and I did this number together, and uh, we were the, the, the evil and the good of democracy. That's what we represented in the dance. And uh, so Ron and uh, Kander and Ebb, who wrote the music and lyrics for the show, <clears throat> were the ones that put the act together. And it was all their idea to use Neil and I, since they had seen us doing uh, a number together in that show, to use us in her act. That we'd be comedy relief for her. <clears throat> and we could also do real dancing, you know. So um, we were kind of the novelty <laughs> that uh, went along with her, you know, that provided the comedy element and uh, just gave a whole different flair to her show. So it wasn't all one thing. <clears throat> so yeah, it was all of, all of them. Not, it wasn't really Liza, it was uh, Kander and Ebb and uh, Ron that decided that. So your next was show, Del Rey Me. So what was it like to work with Phil Silvers and Nancy Walker, both of whom were big stars? Oh, they were funny. They were great. Del <clears throat> uh, Rey Me came after Tenderloin, actually. Um, I replaced in that show. I didn't work with them when they were putting it together. So I didn't have all those experiences. I just had the day-to-day, -day, the night-to-night -night experience of working with them. They're very nice. They were very nice to me. And uh, I liked them. I liked them a lot. But I can't really say a lot about a lot of experiences because I didn't have the creative experiences with them when the show was first put together, you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, God. Did you get the chance to work with Garson Kanan, who directed it, or Comden and Green, or had they sort of moved on by the time that you... Well, I worked with, uh, I worked with Comden and Green a lot in Lorelei. Oh, that's because Joe Layton was the director and choreographer, and I was his assistant in that show. But kind of an ugly story. Joe had put together a, a nightclub show for um, for Carol Channing, uh, for Carol Channing, and uh, it was called Ten. 10-something men, and she was in London at the time. And for some reason, she came back to the United States and left the 10 dancers in London without a way to get home. No money, no uh, keeping them at the hotels. <clears throat> and so Joe Layton, having put the show together, when he heard about that, he brought them back and then sued Carol and her husband for the money and for their meanness, you know. <clears throat> Actually, it was Carol's husband who was the mean one. Carol was very sweet. So um, they wanted Gower Champion to direct and stage the show, but he turned it down. He said, no, 
And when Joe Layton, then they asked Joe, they said, if we give you all the money we owe you, will you direct and choreograph this show for Carol? They said, yes, but I'm working on another show in Vegas at this time. So my wife is going to have to take over for me on the weekends. So if you want to hire me uh, with that, uh, you know, in mind, yes, I'll do it. And uh, so I worked with Joe and uh, his wife took over on the weekends. And she would go through the scenes. She was a good director, directress, and uh, she was very good with them. But uh, we went out of town and suddenly Carol wanted and her husband wanted Joe fired. They were still working out of town. We hadn't, uh, we were supposed to go out of town like for six weeks and then come back to Broadway. And uh, they wanted to fire Joe because Carol wanted what she wanted, not what the director wanted. And uh, Joe said, I won't work that way. And so they fired him, but he was still under contract. At that point, they wanted me to take over. And uh, I was sitting in a hotel room with them. And Julie Stein, uh, the composer, was sitting right next to me. And they said, we want you to take over. And I said, no, I won't do that. Joe has still got a contract with you for three more weeks. He's done some wonderful things for you already. I don't care what your differences are. You still have him under contract. Why don't you use him for those three weeks? Mm -hmm. And Julie Stein kicked me under the table, said, shut up. And, uh, and I said, because I was probably, I could be probably fired next. <clears throat> so they said, okay. So they got, um, they, came, they, they went through a couple of other directors. One was Condon and Green. Oh. And, uh, Tomlin and Green didn't know what Joe had done. <clears throat> and they tried to change things. They didn't understand his philosophy. Joe's philosophy was working. And it's kind of a long story to go into. And I don't want to bore you with that. <clears throat> no, you can't. Well, uh, Lorelei was based on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was done in 1948. Well, now it's 1971. She's coming back. What is it, 26 years almost later? <clears throat> She's 26 years older. So yeah. that's the problem for the director choreographer. Does that mean we have to hire <clears throat> dancers who are 26 years older? They're not going to be able to dance. What are we going to do? Just have a bunch of old people on stage? And Joe came up with the idea and said, no. How about this? She's coming back, whatever, 26 years later, but this is her return trip going to Paris on a ship. And she's revisiting all those places she'd been before. So now we can get the younger dancers and singers and, and people of all ages, whatever is needed in the show. <clears throat> and uh, because the old show was so predictable, they serviced all the words in the songs with the script. So the scripts weren't really great back then. <clears throat> You could see by the script what was going to happen next, no surprise. So Joe made it a surprise because he said, well, how about if she's older and she loses her memory? 
So she has a little purse on a string. And every once in a while, she'll say, wait a minute, is that what I said? Is that what I remember? Stop. And the whole cast would stop. <clears throat> like at one point, her boyfriend is fighting with the guy on the ship and the guy knocks him down. She said, wait a minute. And everybody freezes. She said, is that what happened? And she pulled up this little uh, diary and she said, well, no, that's not what it happened. This is what happened. And then the guys would get up and they start fighting again. And the other guy got knocked down. He said, see, that's what happened. So the audience could never guess what was going to happen. That simple idea kept everybody wondering, what's going to happen next? You know? And, uh, <clears throat> and then I had a part in it where she gets a telegram from Sir Edmund, and that's her boyfriend. And she said, Oh, I don't want to speak to him. Throw it overboard. And her Tamara Long, uh, who is her sidekick, throws the telegram overboard, which means over the edge of the stage into the orchestra pit. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything freezes. He said, is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. This is what happened. And now the telegram is supposed to fly up out of the orchestra pit. Tamara catches it and gives it to her, and it's a nice message. Well, Joe said, how are we going to do that? The, 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 the fore stage, the front stage, is kind of like a, on a little arc, and the, the, the scene is way back there. How are we going to have a, a thread or something else pull that out of this orchestra pit? There's nothing above it to do that with. And I piped up. It'll cost us thousands of dollars. And then we'll have to do it every place we go. And I piped up and they said, well, uh, I can fix that for you. You? I said, yeah, I'm a magician. I know, I know how to do that. How? I said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to do it for you first. And then you can tell me whether you like it. Because if I tell you how I do it, you'll say, that won't work. So I'm going to do it. And then you like it or you won't like it. Okay. So well, I went and worked it out with Carol Channing and Tamara Long. And uh, I bring the telegram on to them. And she reads it. She throws it overboard. She throws it overboard. And she says, is that what happened? No, this is what happened. And I do my little magic trick. And the thing flies up into her hands. She gives it to her. Joe said, you just saved me about $5,000. <laughs> is that great? Yeah, so I, I love being able to figure things out like that. Again, it's figuring out solutions to problems. You know? so, what, what was the solution that you had figured out? Oh, that's a magic secret. <laughs> well, it was a thread and uh, a thin black thread that was attached to the telegram and was also attached to me. And I'm the steward who brings the telegram out. So I handed the telegram and then I go upstage about uh, about eight feet. And I have eight feet of thread there, but because I can switch hands and, and cut it in half, I have about 12 feet of leeway with the thread. And so we said, well, is this what happens? And Laura and the camera looks into the pit and everybody moves. So I move, but I do the movement with the thread. It pulls it right up. And it was very simple. It's a it's a uh, 
it's like a pulley, you know? And, but they couldn't see the black thread and it all happened so fast, but nobody's looking. They have no idea what's going to happen. So when it happens, it's too late to try to figure it out. So yeah. anyway, that worked good. So I've done a few things like that in different shows and with commercials and things like that, figuring out problems and maybe using magic to, uh, you know, fix it. So that was fun. It was fun for me. I, I felt very good about that. Yeah. Things like that, you kind of remember. I fixed it. So I, I guess if I really think about it, it's kind of like my father saying, yeah, I can invent that. I know what to do with that arm or whatever, you know, he, he figured out. <laughs> so, anyway. So another show that you did on Broadway was The Girl Who Came to Supper. So what was it like to work with Noel Coward? Noel Coward, wait a minute, let me look at this. Noel Coward was very sweet. Um, that was his last show. Yeah. you know and that he wrote and uh tessie o'shea was an english uh music hall performer <clears throat> i mean like a vaudeville really and uh, she had a big part in it and uh you know it was very sweet because a lot of stars came backstage they wanted to say hello to Noel while he was in the, <clears throat> in the united states you know and uh i don't know he could figure out answers to most of the pro same thing he figured out answers to problems and would be able to write lyrics about it you know um the funny thing about girl who came to supper was that they fired oh dear god what's his name i can't think of the actor who was doing it they fired the director and they hired joe layton and joe layton brought in his own people and i was one of those people and um, so as a result, the choreography was changed. Uh, his point of view about the direction was changed. And uh, Clive, they were really fun people to work with, all these stars, you know? Yeah. Uh, I remember one time I had to, I was Jose Ferrer's side manservant, like a waiter, like a butler, you know? I followed him every place. And he, he would take his hat off and he and I would take it and rub it around and uh, make the nap on it all. And he gave me a private lesson in how to take care of his derby hat. You know, it was, it was so simple, but he, he was very elegant about how he touched everything. His, he had a sense of touch about things. You know, some people don't care, they just throw things away, but it was very elegant, just the way he... Way, I mean, some people hold something, you know, but other people are sort of delicate about it, you know, and uh, and you see that as an audience, you see that kind of articulation, that kind of carefulness, you know, and uh, that that telegraphs something about the character and about the person, you know, like I worked with a lot of magicians helping them with their acts, and uh, they may have a magic wand, they may throw it on their table. And I said, what are you doing? So well, I don't need it anymore. I said, yeah, but people, you know what people think when they see you doing that act, which has nothing to do with your magic. It's just what you do personally. He said, what? I said, well, they will think I don't want to go on stage if I'm a volunteer. I don't want to do that because 
you may you may treat me like he treats the pen. He may make fun of me. He may embarrass me because that's what he's doing with the pen. That's what people see, and you don't realize that. So you have to handle that that wand differently. You know, <clears throat> it's not just what you say; it's how you say it, and it's what you do. You know how you handle something. Work oh, the guy with yeah. Well, the girl who came to supper um, had a famous Ed Sullivan show performance by Tessie O'Shea. So were you involved in that or had you ever gone on the Ed Sullivan show for another show you did? I was on, I was on a lot of Ed Sullivan, <clears throat> a lot of shows. Well, I, I want to ask you about your next show, which was Baker Street. So okay. how did you come into Baker Street? I believe it was as a replacement. Yeah, yeah very good. Well, you, uh, Baker Street was right after um, Florida Red Menace. And uh, I replaced Tommy Toon. He was in it. Oh. And uh, <clears throat> Tommy and I became friends. <clears throat> in fact, I used to have uh, sessions, cap dancing sessions with two, two of my friends. And Tommy would come in sometimes. And then I would find some of my steps in his shows that he could regret, but whatever. Um, so I, I replaced them then. And again, like I wasn't there in the very beginning. Um, Lee Becker Theodore choreographed it. Um, and uh, she had done Florida Red Menace as well, which is how I made the connection to Baker Street. So when Florida Menace closed, um she was working with baker street and she put me right into it it was already running so you're right i i replaced it and uh so when when you replace in a show how much rehearsal do you usually get one week not much yeah not much so you know you're going all day long doing uh, rehearsals with if you're a dancer the dance captain <clears throat> and uh, if you have lines and stuff then you'd work with the stage manager who puts you in your you know into your place in, in the scene and uh, and uh, maybe the understudy so those parts will work with you and then you go on you know yeah and just just like an understudy would do that uh, so you don't have a lot of interaction with the people in the creation of the show, you know. But what we did in Baker Street, uh, it was uh, it was stories taken from. Help me out here, Sherlock. Well, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, it was a Sherlock Holmes thing, and there were three stories were mixed up in Baker Street, were combined together and uh, there was one scene where three six foot six tall guys came out with big chests and they were one had a they had like a bolos on, on a rope so it's almost like the Argentine bolo, except it had one rope. And the three of us had bolos. And uh, 
there was one guy that we were chasing that was a, a, a bad guy. And we would come on the stage. He would be there in the middle of the stage, and we would come on from different parts of the stage. These very tall, scary-looking with the faces we had painted on. Yeah, and we would throw the we throw these bolos and catch them with all three bolos and drag him across the stage. And the, the middle of the stage would open up a big trap with red light, yellow light coming up through it. And we would just grab him. And oh, then we, we threw a net around him. That's it. We forgot all about that. We threw a net. And uh, we grappled him in the net and we dropped him down the hole. Hopefully he didn't hurt himself because there was a big mattress down there. But he went down into the basement. And then we covered it up and uh, disappeared. So it was when, when we originally did it, um, no, one of the guys had the bolo. The other one had the net. And the third one had a big knife. And the knife was real. And uh, the director came and he came on stage during one of the rehearsals. And I heard this story. And he ran his finger over the knife and he said, oh my god, that's a real knife. He said, no, 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 we're not going to have a real knife here. Somebody's going to get hurt. So they created a fake wooden knife that looked real, silver and all that. You know. But Lee Becker was uh, she was one for reality, realism. So yeah. she, you know, she really wanted to scare this guy. But he could have gotten hurt because it was a dangerous thing anyway. You grab him with the, the, the bolo and threaten him with the knife and toss the net over and tie him and drop him down a hole. <clears throat> there was no way you'd know how he was going to land, you know? Yeah. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. <clears throat> but that was, that was a lot of fun, actually, because it was kind of hard work and it took a lot of practice to get this bolo to really work you know so that was my part of the show <laughs> but then but then uh, uh ron field and fred Ebb took me out of the show because we were then working on liza's act so i went into baker street for i don't know a couple of months and uh, and then they pulled me out to do liza's act so I, I never got to really see all of the little fun things and re irregular things that happened in Baker Street. You know? yeah. But it was a good show. Good show. I want to ask you something that's a little bit relating to what you were talking about earlier about Hells of Poppinand. Okay. So when a show that you're in doesn't do so well, when it's sort of a flop, Mm -hmm. Are you disappointed or do you sort of try to stay above getting too involved emotionally in the success? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, with Hells of Poppin, I was angry. I was the deputy, the union representative. And uh, they had done several things that were not really legal yeah. and uh, they closed the show they're supposed to give you two weeks notice they gave us about five days notice so that means they owed the people everybody in the cast for um, a week and two days they didn't tell the union that mm -hmm. we also had people who were understudies who had gone on and they get extra pay for that for going on and they didn't pay them. 
And I had, when the show closed, I was so mad because the show was good and we were filling the house, but because the producer was petulant and, and childish about the whole thing, he wanted to put in scenes uh, from the old Hells of Pop in 1937, taking from the trunk, so to speak. And Jerry said, no, that won't work. That's old material. And the producer said, it, it'll work because I say so, you'll do it. And Jerry said, no, no, no. Don't you remember when I first started the show? We didn't sign a contract. We shook hands. And you told me that I could choose my material, that I knew what was funny. You told me that. And that's what we shook hands on. And now you're telling me to do whatever you say. And I say, you're wrong. You have to honor the idea that I know what's funny. And I can help make it funny. I have to work with the writers. And the writers are new at this. What they don't write are good endings, good blackout sketches. They write good scripts, but they don't know how to finish them. And I'm trying to help do that. And, uh, and the producer said, well, if you don't do what I say, then I'm closing this show. And Jerry wanted to go to Broadway so badly, you know? And the sad thing about it is I was called in. I was, I was so angry because I knew it was a good show. I knew it would work. I just knew it in my heart. So I was angry at the producer. And when I came back to town, it was on a Sunday. And the very next day, I went to the union. I got in there about 11 o'clock. And I said, I've got a $50,000 claim out against the producer. He said, oh, no, the producer's uh, money man came in here at 9 o'clock this morning. And he said uh, that, that we, don't, we don't owe you guys anything. And I said, well, forget about it. I got a list. You keep the bond, which is what they have to post for every show, the producer. In other words, so that they will make their payments. You keep the bond. He wants the bond. Don't give it to him until this $50,000 thing is settled one way or the other. Yeah. So they had to pay up. But in the meantime, the producer was so mad and he was afraid that all his backers would never give him money again because he closed this show arbitrarily without giving it a fair shake. You know, so that he sued Jerry for the million dollars. And I was in the producer's office, as I told you, for a week. And he was suing him for a million dollars. And the sad part of it is they awarded the producer the million dollars from Jerry. But the reason I found out was Jerry was getting a divorce from his wife. He didn't want to give her the million dollars. So he said, the heck with it. The producer, give it to the producer. It was crazy. It was totally crazy. It just shows you how crazy some people, some shows, some events can be, you know? Yeah. So Jerry lost a million and he didn't have to pay his wife. And then the next year, I couldn't believe it because I was, I was against the producer. He hired me for accidental death of an anarchist. I couldn't believe it. So he was, I don't know, he was very fair. And he realized that what I did was nothing against him. It was just the truth. It was honest. And I was only doing my job, you know? So, so he hired me. So I thought, wow. So I had new respect for him, you know? Funny, huh?
how things work out. You never know. You're seeing you're seeing the backside of the theater now. <laughs> so your next show was the Yearling out of town, which what was it like to do that show with? I I like that show and I came up with some interesting things to do for the choreography for the dance. I was able to put some magic in it. Okay. And, uh, and then for some reason the producer closed us out of town. Whether they couldn't get the theater, whether they couldn't get the money, whether he thought it would be a flop, I don't know. I never heard. It just closed and we were all so sad about that because we were having a good time with the show and so were the audiences. It was a nice show. It was a touching show. So, you know, and several shows like that. <clears throat> um, the the one I did in uh, Canada, Pieces of Eight. Again, it was Joe Layton, and uh, it was a half Canadian cast and a half American cast. And uh, I played the guy on Desert Island, and uh, I had a, I had a really nice part, a nice song. I can remember Julie Stein and I sitting at the piano, and he was teaching me the lyrics to the song and how he wanted it to go. It was a great time. I, I'm just so sorry I never took a photograph of the two of us sitting at the piano because it was a, a memorable moment for me. The great Julie Stein, you know, <laughs> he was great. He was great. And um, they couldn't get the money to come in. They had they had the show. They had it all worked out, uh, and it was a it was a good show. My God, long long John Silver and all that. You know, it was a musical version, and uh, I don't know, just never could get on. So I your next show was Maine, I think I think. So what was it like to work with Angela Lansbury on? Oh, she was lovely. You know, you saw her probably on television uh, in her series, you know. Um, she was really lovely. And uh, I, I was at the 50th anniversary of Maine. They held in a theatrical restaurant in, uh, <coughs> in New York. My wife and I went to it. And she was just lovely. She was as lovely as she was way back 50 years ago, you know. <coughs> She did incredible things. Her son, this is her personal story, her son was on drugs in England and she left the business for almost two years and she took him to uh, some forest in England and kept him isolated from drugs and everything else that influenced him until he kind of sobered up. So she took off from her career to take care of her family. It was really a very touching story. When, she, when we were talking in the theater one day, I saw her doing further up. Yeah. Looking up there. Well, that's what she was doing. She was looking at the top, at the top of my head. And I caught it. And I said, Angela, what are you get out of here? I said, What what are you doing? And she said, What? I said, You're up. She said, Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, oh, oh, I have to tell you why I do that. She said, my very first film, my very first film, I have very deep set eyes 
So my skull comes out over the eyes and it creates shadows. And she said, the next day after shooting this one scene, I got to see the rushes, which are the, the, the shots that you can view of yourself and of the scene the next day. And I saw these black circles around my eyes and I realized that I couldn't do this to get the light, but I found out that if I just kept my head level, like I'm looking at you, but I look up at the top of your forehead, that the light will come in to those and, and erase those shadows. And she said, I realized that's what I had to do. So she said, so if I'm talking to someone, uh, I'm looking at the top of their eye. And if the camera's shooting from behind over my shoulder, uh, watching him, then you can't see that. But if it's the other way around and they're they're looking at me, they uh, figure how to do this. Uh, they can't tell I'm looking at somebody's head unless you really know what to look for. And since you told me that, I've seen several people who do the same trick that are looking a little higher. And she said, so when I when I walk on stage and I'm looking at the balcony up there, I can walk sideways, I can walk, and I don't raise my head to look at the balcony. I just raise my eyes to look up there. And she said, and everybody sees me. And she said, that's why I do that. I'm just in such a habit, kind of saving my, you know, so people can really see me and that I can see them, you know, so interesting, you know, interesting story. Yeah, it is. So you did a lot of industrials around this time, including the Millican show. So what was the experience like of doing those? Oh my God. Uh, well, industrials are, you represent a product like uh, Oldsmobile, General Motors. <clears throat> and I did a lot of those industrials as a principal, senior dancer with a character principal. And what they're trying to do is they have a convention and they bring in car dealers, in this case, from all over the country, or maybe it's in your area. So all the people in that area will come together to see this uh, <laughs> industrial. So they present uh, films, they present uh, sketches to try to illustrate the different positive aspects about their car, you know? Um, I was in one where they were presenting the car of the future. And it was great because they had on the screen, they had a, a family getting into a car and they would come to the road and then they would set their dials or something and the car would come out and would be on some sort of an electronic beam and it would go until it got to the stop you needed, exit such and so. And then you had to take over the car again and drive to wherever you were driving to. But at one point, uh, <laughs> at one point, the screen went tilt, tilted up like this. And the car was coming towards us and the screen went up and the car came right out onto the stage. And oh. it was the car of the future. That was 1958. Now we have those self-driving cars of the future. 58, 
6042, that's 62 years ago, right? And they had the car of the future, driverless, in a sense, driverless cars back then, but they didn't get to be able to do it for 60 plus years, you know? Interesting, you know? Another time we had, uh, we had the car that was in the stars, the hopes of the future. And on the curtain, you'd see these two spotlights, two lights from behind the curtain coming, coming, coming down. And as it hit the stage, the curtain went up and the car would be there with its spotlights facing you, you know, it was very clever. So I got to sing and dance and do sketches and, uh, and I remember one, I was dancing, it was over on stage right, uh, facing the audience on our right. And uh, the director said, the guy from the car company from American Motors is out there. Do the best you can, guys. He wants to see if he likes the show or not. So we did our numbers and all that stuff. And then I said to him, after the show, he said, yeah, he liked it a lot. And I said, but you know, on our side of the stage, when we did this number, it was very dark. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think people can see us. He said, ah, I did it on purpose. What? He said, because this guy uh, is in charge. He's like vice president. <clears throat> he's, he's, he's going to tell me something I have to do. He's got to say something because he's vice president. <clears throat> So I purposely darkened the stage oh. <clears throat> so he would see it and he would say something obvious like, you know, I can hardly see that scene. You should light it up better. And I said to him, oh, oh, Charles, thank you very much. I didn't see that. Thank you. I will do that. He said, so if he had something like that positive to say to me, he wouldn't change anything else. Yeah. So I, I uh, misdirected him. I misguided him. She's so now I'll put the lights up and I don't have to worry about it. He wants to change lines or he wants to change actors or he wants to change something in the staging, which is pretty hard to do at this late stage of the game, you know? So all those little tricks, you know? <clears throat> I had one uh, actor say to me and one of them said, you never do the same thing twice. For God's sake, I don't know how to react to you. I said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Huh. Okay, can't do that in industrial. You got to be the same. All right, all right. So I was the same, and he was very happy. So every kind of a job is, uh, you know, you have to be different. And you have to understand what that difference is and, and give them what they want, you know. Who were some of the other dancers and stars that you got to work with while doing? Oh, dear. Um, oh, that's funny. <clears throat> I did so many industrials. I mean, things like Sony, they had five characters. And we had to play Dorothy, Scarecrow, Wizard of Oz, and uh, whatever, Tin, Tin Woodman, the five characters. And uh, it's, it's funny because uh, Ray Bolger was there with Dunn's Scarecrow. But he came to the morning because usually industrials or about 7 30 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, he came and he saw the show but he was there to uh, entertain them at lunchtime 
you know, and he called, came and saw the show. When he came back and saw me, and he said, hey, I got a picture for you. And my favorite picture in the whole world, signed by Ray Bolger, he's a scarecrow, himself is a scarecrow. And he, he, he said to Bob, a fellow scarecrow. I went, ah! <laughs> signed Ray. Right? Yeah. So I was like, that was my favorite thing. And then later on, in another industrial, I understudied both he and Donald O'Connor and uh, a third person. And uh, I, I had to, Donald O'Connor's wife came to me one day and she said, Donald asked if you would negotiate between he and Ray. They're fighting oh. and they need help. Oh, oh my God. Okay. So I went out and the industrial was a, a Americana kind of theme. And the last number in the show was It's a Grand Dope Flag. And uh, Ray Bolger was going to finish the show and then he was going to, they were going to start ding, 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 start playing that tune. And he'd go to the wings and pick up Donald and they would both come on doing the same thing together. And then they would sing a song, a chorus of It's a Grand Little Flag. Then they would both go to the wings and they would bring on the entire cast. And that's the way the last number of the show was going to go. Everybody waving flags. And uh, Donald and Ray couldn't get together on the steps. They, they, they thought they could, the management thought they could put the steps together since they were three dancers. But they couldn't decide on which steps to use. One didn't like the other steps and so forth. And Ray Bolger would say, uh, I don't know, he would do an improv and it then didn't remember his introduction. And uh, I would come and say, well, well, Ray, you did this. I don't like that. I want to do something else. Okay. And then Don O'Connor would say, oh, God, guys, it's... Uh, it's five o'clock. It's I'm tired. I got to go home. And then Ray Bolger would say, "Well, that drunk. I don't know how he made it in show business." I'm going, "Oh my God!" Yeah. And then while Ray is trying to figure out stuff, Donald Connor would be saying to me, "That jerk. How did he ever make it in show business? An idiot." I'm saying, "Oh my God! I got a mediate between these two guys, and I like them both. They're just different." You know, they're just different types, different styles. That's all it is, you know. It took two days to finally get them settled into what they're doing. And then it was fine. But, you know, it was that grinding it out process of figuring out what to do in a very short time, you know. So, and uh, then I got a note from, from Donald later on saying, thanks for the help. And a year later, he called me and said, is this your address? And uh, I want to make sure I got it. He sent me a Christmas, a Christmas card. And it was very sweet. It was very sweet. You know, you know, everybody's got their own problems, their own fears about <clears throat> getting older and not being able to make it up anymore or not being able to cut the mustard or whatever. It's just people are different. And uh, they have different levels of uh, patience with, uh, with the uh, creative process. So you, know, you just you learn to live with it. You learn to deal with it. So, you know, it's life, really, you know. Yeah.
I don't know if that answers anything, but it, uh, <laughs> it was uh, that show Donald. <clears throat> that was a Millican show, and uh, it was like Burlington Fabrics. Burlington Fabrics is a corporation. Millican, however, was owned by a family. And they would create the industrial to bring all of the buyers from all of the department stores, <clears throat> big department stores, from all over the United States. They would bring them to New York and put them up at a hotel on their nickel. <clears throat> and then they would invite them to the show. And in the show, we'd be dancing. And at one moment, we'd stop and say, boom, you know, uh, um, think of any any manufacturing jeans, you know, maybe jeans. And then music would start again, you start dancing. So the buyers would say, oh, my company, my store buys jeans. I'm writing it down. And this afternoon, I'm going to go to the jean company and order so many jeans. So all the different companies were kind of represented and it would stop. They, they'd announced what it is, and that's the way the format of the show worked. You yeah. know? At any rate, I uh, can't remember. Oh, so at one point, Donald was, was they had the Miller Kitties. They were young kids who were in a playground situation that was swaying in a slide. Donald was sitting on the slide. I was the understudy. So I was in the room with the dance captain and the pianist. That's it. And the kids and Donald. And the, the choreographer is trying to choreograph the kids and Donald in this number. So Donald thinks his thing, sitting on the slide. The kids are around him. Now he's supposed to come up. And the choreographer said, Donald, I want you to uh, jump up, 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 do that step. And he said, yeah, okay. Uh, show me again. Pop up, whatever. And he said, okay, uh, um, I can't learn that. What? I can't learn that. She turns all around to meet me and looks at me and she said, I said, I heard it. Come here. She said, Donald, take five. Take five minutes. Said, you hear what he said? I said, yeah, I heard it. You can't. Learn it. She said, but he's Donald Connor, for God's sake. He's a song and dance man. I said, okay, it's either two things. Either he can't learn it or he doesn't like your steps. Call him back after the five. I'll take care of it. So she called him back after the five and she said, uh, Bob has some ideas. He said, uh, Donald, I'm going to play the music. Why don't you just improvise to it? He said, okay. Play the music and he <laughs> improvised to it. And the choreographer turned to me and she said, oh my God, I spent two weeks coming up with those steps. He just improvised something that was twice as good as what I had. I said, he's Donald O'Connor. <laughs> and she said, but now you have to do it. You have the kids have to go around him doing the same step. He said, okay. She said, Donald, can you do it again? Said, yeah. So he did it again. And I studied with Donald O'Connor's coach in Los Angeles when I was 16, 17 years old. Oh. And I recognized the kinds of steps that he was doing. 
I felt like I was going back to being a teenager. It was great. And so I gave the kids a step. And Donald O'Connor said, hey, wait a minute. Who are you? He said, I'm Bob Rich. He said, no, 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 no. How come you were able to pick that step up? I, I don't understand that. You're, you're acting like my, my coach, uh, Louis DuPont. He said, well, I studied with him when I was 16 and 17, and then I met you there. You don't remember that. You were just crossing the floor, and he said, hi, this is Bob, this is Donald. Yeah, hi. You know, I said, he said, okay, let's go to lunch. <laughs> so we went to lunch, and he gave me his whole history. How When he was one year old, folks held him by the nap of the neck in vaudeville just with his feet just above the stage, and he would be kicking like a little baby, and they were tap dancing, and the audiences loved it and clapped and all that. And then he said, so I grew up, I grew up tap dancing and never had any lessons. So the truth is, I really can't learn, but I can hear music and improvise. And he said that when I do a movie, uh, Louis Dupont will come behind me and they play the movie in the in the studio, and he will create the tap sounds because I'm gone. I'm doing something else, and maybe maybe it's a, a number where I wore soft shoes and I'm dancing on hay in a barn. And he said, "So obviously I can't wear tap shoes in there." So Donald, uh, uh, <laughs> my choreographer, will make up the steps, will make up the sounds, and record the sounds. The foley work, it's called. Sound, sound, you know. And later on, uh, that's funny because uh, um, Bob Fosse hired me to do the sound for a movie, Harold and Maude. And uh, the woman was, she had taken about two or three lessons as a kid, tap dancing. And now she was on this program as a winner, kind of like America's Got Talent, but a, 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 whatever program and she was supposed to tap dance and she was supposed to win and then she was supposed to pick one of the two curtains like you get the car or you get the tiger kind of you know lady of the tiger kind of thing At any rate she'd only taken a couple of lessons as a kid and her tap dancing was awful and oh. she didn't know what she did so she couldn't make the sound for it so bob Plessy gave them my name and number and they called me on the phone. So I went through the studio, 49th Street, fifth floor. And we went into this sound studio. Well, it was wild. They had squares like parquet floors. And you take the square out and underneath there'd be grass or uh, dirt or cement. Or different kinds of uh, what a floor would be. Different kinds of uh, earth, you know, whatever covers the floor, wooden, metal, whatever. And uh, they said, we're gonna play the film and the music. Can you do this whole film from beginning to end? And I said, no, I haven't seen it. And you play like eight bars at a time. And certainly, yeah. So I could watch it once or twice. And it was easy to copy her because she didn't do a thing, anything very hard. And then there'd be shots of the audience and I could do whatever I wanted, but I really couldn't because if I got too good, it wouldn't be what she could do. It would be a lie. So I had to make up some what I considered bad stuff, simple stuff. At any rate, so when we got through that, the guy said, can you do the whole thing? I said, yeah, now I can. 
So we shot it several times and I did the whole movie, the whole number on the, they had like boards that were like a xylophone and you stand on them and made nice sound. Anyway, I did that. And that was because of Bob Fosse and doing some folding work. So all these really weird jobs came along, you know, that were so interesting to me. They were, I call them craft jobs, you know, where you sort of behind the scenes and you get things to work and you do things and fix things. So again, to me, it reflected what I'd kind of gotten from my dad, you know, figuring out problems and things like that. That was fun to me. Anyway. So I want to ask you about Sherry, which was the musical based on The Man Who Came to Dinner, which you did. So can you tell us a little bit? There's no recording of that musical. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like? Okay. Sherry at the Alvin Theater. Um, they changed choreographers in the, in the rehearsal period. And again, they hired uh, Joe Layton. And they I cannot think of the man who was the lead in it. But uh, they switched to Clive Revel. And the other actor, I can see his face, I can't. He's a very elegant actor, but he didn't have the guts to play this character in the show. And Clive Revel took over, and uh, he was really he was really wonderful. So the switch of actors meant that they also switched directors. And uh, again, I assisted Joe Layton in putting the show together, and uh, that was, in fact was a show. Well, I overcame my own singing. Um, um, the first show I got doing that, figuring out the a solution to the problem, I thought, was Sherry. And also that I'd worked with Joe Layton before, and he knew what I could do, and I could, I could help him and even come up with steps. And so he hired me for that. And I worked opposite of one number, Doris Gray. And uh, she was great. She was great. So, um, yeah, it's hard to say now. I got, a, I got a note from a guy about a month ago. He said, you have the script for Sherry. He said, I have spoken to the composer and the director and uh, several people in the cast, and nobody seems to have a script for Sherry. Do you still have a script of Sherry? That was, let me see. So anyway, that, that doesn't help you too much with Sherry, but <clears throat> it was a complete changeover in Sherry because they had already rehearsed three weeks and they had like three weeks more to rehearse. And so usually Broadway is about a six week rehearsal period. And, uh, and then they, what they used to do anyway was to go out of town to try out shows. You know, they'd go to Boston or they'd go to Philadelphia or New Haven maybe Atlanta, sometimes Chicago, whatever. And they'd be out for four weeks, six weeks. And it wasn't a tour, it was a tryout where they would try different, that scene doesn't work, let's cut it out. Here's a new scene, let's put it in. So they would change a lot of things while it was in tryouts. So they tested it on audiences that way. And, uh, and they tried to increase their chances of it's becoming a hit and you know making money with it. So. 
that's what the tryouts were. I don't know so much they do that anymore. Well, right now they're not doing anything and people have to find other jobs. What and where and how, I don't know. But now it's murder. But anyway, that's what the tryouts were and that's what we did. And uh, it became a hit. It came back in. You know? So my brother was an interesting man. He would sit on stage and stare into when he wasn't rehearsing and there was nobody else there. Sit on stage and stare into the audience. And I caught him. I saw him doing that. <clears throat> and once I asked him, I said, Clive, what are you doing? It's like you're meditating or something. He said, yeah, in a way. He said, I'm looking. You would go into the audience and stare at the stage. That's really what it was. He said, when I get to that point, I am seeing myself on stage, what I do, the blocking, and what I, why am I doing it? Why am I moving over there? All those kinds of things. And he said it would sort of, it would sort of improve my performance because I would figure out why I'm going there and really make it work for me. Or maybe the why wasn't strong enough. And I'd say, no, I don't want to go over there. I want to come over here. Or I don't want to go anywhere, whatever. You know, there's a lot of work in the acting process. And sometimes the directors will give the actors a leeway. What do you feel here? What do you think here? What do you think is going to happen? But other directors say, do what I say. I was in forum and the director, oh my God, uh, Whoopi Goldberg had taken over. She was the first woman ever to play pseudonymous. And uh, she was very funny. And uh, anyway, the director had said, I want you all look front and talk to the audience. Well, maybe you're standing over there. I should be talking to you, not you. But the director had this thing about talking loud and to the audience. And it sort of seemed like you didn't care what it felt like or why you did it or the meaning behind it. And it was really, it's really tough kind of sneaking the truth and the reality into it. And one day, the, the guy playing Hero, which was a young man, yeah. I was on the third floor of the dressing room. He came in the dressing room and said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. He said, Shh, take a breath, take a breath. <coughs> Relax. It's going to be okay. What's the matter? He said, well, I just, Whoopi came into the show. He said, she looked at me and I didn't know what to do. I said, well, why don't you look at her back? He said, because we're supposed to look front. So he was a, a young and experienced actor and he said, okay, Whoopi's playing this for real. I said, if you want to get a good reaction, you want the audience to like you so that you're not just a stiff folk who's saying lines that doesn't mean a damn thing. I said, look at her and talk to her. She's a person. People feel that relationship. They don't feel it here. Yeah. And uh, wow. Anyway. <laughs> I played the dirty old man, and uh, um, and we did the 
we started the number, everybody's got to have a baby. Everybody's got to have a working girl, a working girl to put around the house, whatever. Anyway, we had to go, everybody ought to have a baby. Bah. Everybody ought, and I forgot my line right there. My arm is still going up and down. We're still walking across step, close, step, close, you know. And she turns and looks at me and she says, uh-huh, white man. And it breaks me up. It breaks me up. I'm still doing this, still working. But I go, ha, 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 ha. everybody ought to have a working girl. I remembered the lyrics and I couldn't. What a lesson that was, because if I'd, if I'd stopped the movement with the words, I wouldn't have ever remembered. Because you learn the words separately from the movement or the choreography. So you're, you're adding layers to everything you do. You've got the, the words, then there's the music and the song, then there's the movement, you know? And if you, you let them all go, you forget everything. But I found out if I let one of them go, the others are still there. The movement was still there. And somehow the movement brought me back to the words. And it was, it was really a funny moment. She was very funny. She was, she was in the moment. She was always right there. I loved her. She would sit and play with the kids in the wings. We'd sit on the floor and uh, a couple of the actors had little kids and they watched them so they wouldn't come on stage. But she'd sit there when she wasn't on stage and play with the kids. It was great. It was just great. You know, it was swell. She was a sweetheart. So it was great. Well, well thank listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. That is indeed the conclusion of part one of my episode with Bob Fitch. So make sure to come back next time for part two. Thanks for tuning in.